Section 13 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4, Section 13, A Feast, by Joel Barlow. Joel Barlow, 1754-1812 One morning late in the July of 1778, a select company gathered in the little chapel of Yale College to listen to orations and other exercises by a picked number of students of the senior class, one of whom, named Barlow, had been given the coveted honor of delivering what was termed the commencement poem. Those of the audience who came from a distance, carried back to their homes in elm-shaded Norwich, or Stratford, or Litchfield, high on its hills, lively recollections of a handsome young man and of his prospect of peace whose cheerful prophecies in heroic verse so greatly improved the occasion they had heard that he was a farmer's son from reading connecticut who had been to school at hanover new hampshire and had entered dartmouth college but soon removed to yale on account of its superior advantages that he had twice seen active service in the continental army and that he was engaged to marry a beautiful new haven girl the brilliant career predicted for barlow did not begin immediately distaste for war hope of securing a tutorship in college and we may well believe miss ruth's entreaties kept him in new haven two years longer engaged in teaching and in various courses of study the prospect of peace had been issued in pamphlet form and the compliments paid the author incited him to plan a poem of a philosophic character on the subject of america at large bearing the title the vision of columbus the appointment as tutor never came and instead of cultivating the muse in peaceful new haven he was forced to evoke her aid in a tent on the banks of the hudson whither after a hurried course in theology he proceeded as an army chaplain in seventeen eighty during his connection with the army which lasted until its disbandment in seventeen eighty three he won repute by lyrics written to encourage the soldiers and by a flaming political sermon as he termed it on the treason of arnold army life ended barlow removed to hartford where he studied law edited the american mercury a weekly paper he had helped to found and with john trumbull lemuel hopkins and David Humphreys formed a literary club which became widely known as the Hartford Wits. Its chief publication, a series of political 
lampoons styled the anarchiad satirized those factions whose disputes imperiled the young republic and did much to influence public opinion in connecticut and elsewhere in favor of the federal constitution a revision and enlargement of dr watts book of psalmody and the publication seventeen eighty seven of his own vision of columbus occupied part of barlow's time while in hartford the latter poem was extravagantly praised ran through several editions and was republished in london and paris but the poet who now had a wife to support could not live by his pen nor by the law and when in seventeen eighty eight he was urged by the scioto land company to become its agent in paris he gladly accepted the company was a private association formed to buy large tracts of government land situated in ohio and sell them in europe to capitalists or actual settlers this failed disastrously and barlow was left stranded in paris where he remained supporting himself partly by writing partly by business ventures becoming intimate with the leaders of the girondist party the man who had dedicated his vision of columbus to louis the sixteenth and had also dined with the nobility now began to figure as a zealous republican and as a liberal in religion from seventeen ninety to seventeen ninety three he passed most of his time in london where he wrote a number of political pamphlets for the society for constitutional information an organization openly favoring french republicanism and a revision of the british constitution here also in seventeen ninety one he finished a work entitled advice to the privileged orders which probably would have run through many editions had it not been suppressed by the british government the book was an arraignment of tyranny in church and state and was quickly followed by the conspiracy of kings an attack in verse on those european countries which had combined to kill republicanism in france in seventeen ninety two barlow was made a citizen of france as a mark of appreciation of a letter addressed to the national convention giving that body advice and when the convention sent commissioners to organize the province of savoy into a department barlow was one of the number as a candidate for deputy from savoy he was defeated but his visit was not fruitless for at chambery the sight of a dish of maize meal porridge reminded him of his early home in connecticut and inspired him to write in that ancient french town a typical yankee poem hasty pudding its preface in prose addressed to mrs washington assured her that simplicity of diet was one of the virtues and if cherished by her as it doubtless was it would be more highly regarded by her countrywomen 
between the years of 1795 to 97, Barlow held the important but unenviable position of United States Consul at Algiers, and succeeded both in liberating many of his countrymen who were held as prisoners and in perfecting treaties with the rulers of the Barbary states, which gave United States vessels entrance to their ports and secured them from piratical attacks. On his return to Paris, he translated Volney's ruins into English, made preparations for writing histories of the American and French revolutions, and expanded his vision of Columbus into a volume which as the Columbiad, a beautiful specimen of typography, was published in Philadelphia in 1807 and republished in London. The poem was held to have increased Barlow's fame, but it is stilted and monotonous, and hasty pudding has done more to perpetuate his name. In 1805, Barlow returned to the United States and bought an estate near Washington, D.C., where he entertained distinguished visitors. In 1811, he returned to France authorized to negotiate a treaty of commerce. After waiting nine months, he was invited by Napoleon, who was then in Poland, to a conference at Wilna. On his arrival, Barlow found the French army on the retreat from Moscow, and endured such privations on the march, that on December 24th, he died of exhaustion at the village of Zarnoiec near Krakow, and there was buried. Barlow's part in developing American literature was important, and therefore he has a rightful place in a work which traces that development. He certainly was a man of varied ability and power, who advanced more than one good cause and stimulated the movement toward higher thought. The only complete Life and Letters of Joel Barlow by Charles Burr Todd, published in 1888, gives him unstinted praise as excelling in statesmanship, letters, and philosophy. With more assured justice, which all can echo, it praises his nobility of spirit as a man. No one can read the letter to his wife written from Algiers when he thought himself in danger of death without a warm feeling for so unselfish and affectionate a nature. A Feast From Hasty Pudding There are various ways of preparing and eating hasty pudding with molasses, butter, sugar, cream, and fried. Why so excellent a thing cannot be eaten alone? Nothing is perfect alone. Even man, who boasts of so much perfection, is nothing without his fellow substance. In eating, beware of the lurking heat that lies deep in the mass. Dip your spoon gently. Take shallow dips and cool it by degrees. It is sometimes necessary to blow. 
this is indicated by certain signs which every experienced feeder knows they should be taught to young beginners i have known a child's tongue blistered for want of this attention and then the school dame would insist that the poor thing had told a lie a mistake the falsehood was in the faithless pudding a prudent mother will cool it for her child with her own sweet breath the husband seeing this pretends his own wants blowing too from the same lips a sly deceit of love she knows the cheat but feigning ignorance lends her pouting lips and gives a gentle blast which warms the husband's heart more than it cools his pudding the days grow short but though the falling sun to the glad swain proclaims his day's work done night's pleasing shades his various tasks prolong and yield new subjects to my various song for now the corn-house filled the harvest home the invited neighbors to the husking come a frolic scene where work and mirth and play unite their charms to chase the hours away where the huge heap lies centred in the hall the lamp suspended from the cheerful wall brown corn-fed nymphs and strong hard-handed bows alternate ranged extend in circling rows assume their seats the solid mass attack the dry husks rustle and the corn cobs crack the song the laugh alternate notes resound and the sweet cider trips in silence round the laws of husking every white can tell and sure no laws he ever keeps so well for each red ear a general kiss he gains with each smut ear he smuts the luckless swains but when to some sweet maid a prize is cast red as her lips and taper as her waist she walks the round and calls one favoured beau who leaps the luscious tribute to bestow various the sport as are the wits and brains of well-pleased lasses and contending swains till the vast mound of corn is swept away and he that gets the last ear wins the day meanwhile the housewife urges all her care the well-earned feast to hasten and prepare the sifted meal already waits her hand the milk is strained the bowls in order stand the fire flames high and as a pool that takes the headlong stream that o'er the mill-dam breaks foams roars and rages with incessant toils so the vexed cauldron rages roars and boils first with clean salt she seasons well the food then strews the flour and thickens well the flood long o'er the simmering fire she lets it stand to stir it well demands a stronger hand the husband takes his turn and round and round the ladle flies at last the toil is crowned when to the board the thronging huskers pour and take their seats as at the corn before 
i leave them to their feast there still belong more useful matters to my faithful song for rules there are though ne'er unfolded yet nice rules and wise how pudding should be et some with molasses grace the luscious treat and mix like bards the useful and the sweet a wholesome dish and well-deserving praise a great resource in those bleak wintry days when the chilled earth lies buried deep in snow and raging boreas dries the shivering cow blessed cow thy praise shall still my notes employ great source of health the only source of joy mother of egypt's god but sure for me were i to leave my god i'd worship thee how oft thy teats these pious hands have pressed how oft thy bounties prove my only feast how oft i've fed thee with my favourite grain and roared like thee to see thy children slain ye swains who know her various worth to prize ah house her well from winter's angry skies potatoes pumpkins should her sadness cheer corn from your crib and mashes from your beer when spring returns she'll well acquit the loan and nurse at once your infants and her own milk then with pudding i should always choose to this in future i confine my muse till she in haste some further hints unfold good for the young nor useless to the old first in your bowl the milk abundant take then drop with care along the silver lake your flakes of pudding these at first will hide their little bulk beneath the swelling tide but when their growing mass no more can sink when the soft island looms above the brink then check your hand you've got the portion due so taught my sire and what he taught is true there is a choice in spoons though small appear the nice distinction yet to me tis clear the deep bold gallic spoon contrived to scoop in ample draughts the thin diluted soup performs not well in those substantial things whose mass adhesive to the metal clings where the strong labial muscles must embrace the gentle curve and sweep the hollow space with ease to enter and discharge the freight a bowl less concave but still more dilate becomes the pudding best the shape the size a secret rests unknown to vulgar eyes experienced feeders can alone impart a rule so much above the lore of art these tuneful lips that thousand spoons have tried with just precision could the point decide though not in song the muse but poorly shines in cones and cubes and geometric lines yet the true form as near as she can tell is that small section of a goose-egg shell which in two equal portions shall divide the distance from the centre to the side fear not to slaver 
tis no deadly sin like the free frenchman from your joyous chin suspend the ready napkin or like me poise with one hand your bowl upon your knee just in the zenith your wise head project your full spoon rising in a line direct bold as a bucket heed no drops that fall the wide-mouthed bowl will surely catch them all end of section thirteen